there, my name is Kathleen, and this is The Osborne Tapes, the re-release of the Analyst Corner podcast with Debbie Osborne. Today's episode focuses on graffiti and how to deal with the problem. The guest on the show, Dr. Pamela Beal, speaks on her experience with community-oriented policing. Dr. Beal discusses her work with the West Side Story Project Toolkit and working with the Department of Justice to prevent youth violence and improve police-youth relationships through theater and the arts. This episode talks about the truth of graffiti, like the cost of cleanup, which today is about 15 to $18 billion nationwide, which has increased significantly since this episode was first aired. Graffiti prevention is also discussed, as well as policing areas considered more vulnerable for graffiti and vandalism. The graffitihurts.org website referenced by Dr. Beal has now changed to Keep America Beautiful, kab.org. The Keep America Beautiful website has plenty of resources and toolkits and manuals on how to manage graffiti in your area and tips for task forces. This episode is still extremely relevant today and offers a great wealth of resources for anyone interested in this issue. So let's get into the episode. Welcome to Analyst Corner, a talk radio show dedicated to the development of crime and intelligence analysis in policing. My name is Deborah Osborne, and it is August 22, 2008. Today's topic is graffiti, specifically best practices to deal with the problem. The role of the analyst in policing is not only to identify problems, but to help police agencies find solutions to those problems. My guest today is Dr. Pamela Beal. Dr. Beal is currently the project director for the West Side Story Project Toolkit. Dr. Beal lives in Tacoma, Washington, and works with the Seattle Police Foundation on a Department of Justice Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services grant to create a toolkit for other locations to replicate a project that uses theater and the arts as a means of preventing youth violence and improving police-youth relations. Dr. Beal was formerly formerly the director of the University at Buffalo Regional Community Police Center in Buffalo, New York, where she worked with local law enforcement on several low-level crime and disorder problems, including the problem of graffiti. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, Debbie. Welcome to the show. Um, Perhaps you could explain a a little bit about the Office of Community-Oriented Policing, because some of our listeners are not have never are not familiar with this concept. They're not in law enforcement. They're just the public, not just oh, sh- the public, but they're people who have not access to this information. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, the Office of Community Oriented Policing Services, otherwise known as the COPS Office, uh, was created in the mid '90s uh, under the Clinton administration, I believe. Uh, actually, took primarily to hire police officers, uh, additional police officers, and um, and improve uh, relations between the police departments across the nation and their communities. And they also uh, funded several problem-solving projects. Problem-oriented policing is another acronym, POP, used in uh, uh, policing since about mm, mid-80s. And uh, the Office of Community-Oriented Policing Services uh, supported uh, police departments that worked on um, crime problems using what was called the SARA model, all sorts of acronyms this morning scanning, analysis, response, and assessment so that they wouldn't just have to solve a problem by um, answering a 911 call, which is often not the way to solve particularly low-level crime and disorder problems, but that they could get the police together with various 
community partners um, to look at the problem more holistically and to come up with a solution that um, resolves or significantly reduces the problem. And the COPS office is uh, still in existence and they still fund these kinds of projects. Um, in fact, I'm working on one of their projects right now. And that could be a topic for a future show. Um, the POPs, the um, popcenter.org has a guide, a, pro a problem-oriented policing guide called Graffiti, and the website for that is popcenter.org. And you were speaking about low-level crime and disorder problems, and that you know was in the, in your introduction. Um, the public might not understand the value of targeting low-level crime and disorder problems on TV. We're saying you know you need to get the serial killer and the um, violent criminal, but there's a very there are many reasons attacking low-level crime and disorder problems are important, and it's a high priority, in fact, as going after the violent offender. And maybe you could speak to that a bit before we discuss graffiti in particular. Sure. Yeah. Well, uh, 911 calls are, of course, the calls that people make to the police department, and in a busy city like Buffalo, over 75% of those calls were not what they call part one crimes, not high level crimes, um, and certainly usually not even violent crimes at any level. Uh, they were problems communities were facing with um, things like prostitution or um, car break-ins or all sorts of different whether what they call very low level um, crimes, um, graffiti being one of them. So if you consider that, uh, in a real busy little city like Buffalo, 75% of those um, of the crimes are, that people are concerned about are low-level crime and disorder problems. Um, and in the suburbs, it's even higher. It's probably 90%. Then a police department's the bulk of their business and the bulk of the things that the community is really concerned about and affected by are these low-level crime and disorder problems. But unlike the higher crimes, they're usually not solved by a quick response, a 911 response. They're not emergencies. And Often the person who uh, committed the crime is never even seen and not, uh, not uh, able to be apprehended by a quick response. So um, there has to be a different way, usually, to resolve these kinds of low-level crime and disorder problems, which is what I did working with the Buffalo Police Department, um, creating these kinds of small problem-solving groups that then had quite a bit of success in reducing um, these kinds of problems. What... Um as we talk about graffiti, what is the cost of graffiti to the community? Um, I know that we can say graffiti just doesn't look good and we don't like it. And we do know um, many of the listeners would understand that gangs might use graffiti to communicate and the signs of cer certain graffiti means that um, gangs are in an area and then there's the normal graffiti that maybe some of us even did when we were young and write our initials, you know, use a marker and put our initials in a in a restroom door saying we love someone when we were kids, but it's not. There's different types of graffiti, but why? what is the cost of graffiti? Because I know um, some of our listeners won't be aware of what, how significant this impacts the community. Yeah, you know, when our group started uh, the task force in Buffalo, we weren't aware of that either. Um, and actually there's a national group, graffitihurts.org, and um, people can go online and see what the new statistics are. I haven't looked just recently, but last I looked, the national cost of graffiti was $12 billion a year. And um, I'm sure it's gone up by now. 
in Buffalo locally, we estimated probably about a million dollars, maybe half a million to a million dollars a year. It's hard to exactly estimate, but the school district alone, I believe, had budgeted $100,000 a year to clean up graffiti. So it's a significant uh, cost, economic cost to the community, besides the fact that, like you said, it makes area, an area look bad. It uh, makes people feel unsafe. That's right. probably the, the major problem for people locally, what they're concerned about. Right, and because also, as, as you said, if, if people don't have a police response to those calls, a quick response, they also feel that they're not being protected and that lawbreakers aren't being controlled. Um, yes. I, I have the POP guide in front of me on graffiti. It did, does say $12 billion. Um, the, and, and that isn't just, that's not just the cost. To, that isn't the cost of government. It's, every, it's everybody. It's like the business owner who has to clean up their building um, the transit system that has to clean up the graffiti. Um, yes. The declining property values are something that you might not even know, be able to to determine the cost and, and also re- reduce retail sales and just the perception that there's oh, danger. Yep. So we have a problem here with graffiti. Yes, <laughs> and, we do. Um, maybe you can tell us um, a bit about the project that graffiti project that is, I think, still going on in Buffalo now. You're no longer yes, here in Buffalo. Is. But what type, how did you use Palmorian and policing or you and the team who worked on this type of problem? Well, um, it started by a, a landlord actually coming to me uh, when I was working at the Regional Community Policing Center, just concerned about graffiti that was on her garage. And she'd take it off and it'd get put back up again. And so, um, I got together a group of people, usually with problem solving, you want to get to people, get uh, together people who are affected by the problem because they know what the problem is, they can help define it. Um, people with resources to address the problem, um, usually city government, police, uh, sometimes business owners, um, uh, other sorts of partners, and also sometimes the problem him or herself, which is uh, we didn't have them on our task force, so we certainly did tap into that resource also. Uh, so. The group got together, and we really didn't know much about graffiti at all. And the first thing we discovered by uh, a little bit of research, um, not on the web or anything like that, just uh, talking to different people, and uh, and actually going to the graffitihurts.org website too, was that 80% of the graffiti that you see is not committed by gang members. It's probably actually higher. So that was a big piece of information to have. Because first of all, um, it means that graffiti is not really an indicator that an area is unsafe. And that's one of the things we really wanted people to know right off the get-go. Um, and that's a message that has to get out further. Because feeling unsafe is really, again, one of the biggest problems about graffiti. And when I have talked to taggers, or not gang members, I tell them that. And they're not aware that it makes people feel unsafe. They really just feel like they're expressing themselves. Um, and they don't they feel a little badly about that usually, so that's a message we need to get it not only out to the community but to the taggers um, it taggers. Al- it also oh taggers, I think our listeners might not know what a tagger is, which I mean a gang member and a tagger are two different things, and the tagger actually does have sort of a profile um of a typical tagger. What is the tagger? Yes, when I do um teaching for police officers, I usually ask them. Um, what they think the profile of a typical tagger is. A, tri- a typical graffiti vandal is the word we use. Um, and uh, 
I'm usually referring to people who um, I separate out people who are gang members and then people who are these just graffiti vandals who aren't affiliated with a gang, but they're just expressing themselves. And usually they come up with, a, you know, teenager, um, usually of a, a minority background, someone from a, um, a low social economic background. Anyway, it's pretty much the opposite. Uh, usually these uh, taggers, again, um, graffiti vandals, are uh, sometimes the ones we've uh, caught have been in their 20s. <laughs> and they're often in college or college uh, affiliated with some college. And they're usually middle class and often from the suburbs. Uh, they have a, an entirely different motivation than a gang member who's tagging his or her territory um, or doing some sort of warning to other gang members, which is what gang graffiti usually um, what motivates gang graffiti. Uh, these taggers, these graffiti vandals, um, their motivations have much more to do with a kind of one-upsmanship among each other, um, a, a, a fame, again, mostly um, amongst their peers. And there's quite a few of them out there. And um, that's you know a whole different motivation than a gang member would, would have. They also um, do gain fame on the Internet, I believe. There's websites and some of the taggers have used created videos and shared videos of themselves creating yeah, their art. Yeah, yeah we so, actually bought one of their videos. <laughs> so some of the, you know, as far as when law, law, people in law enforcement listening to this show, you know, can get can be looking online for to understand the problem of those people who are perhaps the six percent of people doing sixty percent of the of the graffiti crime, the the people who are blazing their same initials. For example, um, Dr. Beal, you could tell us a few of the names that you've seen around Buffalo that are chronic um, tagger names, and and that's like the identifier or a symbol they always use. Yes, sure. Uh, one of the first ones we came across was M-E-R-K, Merck. Um, and uh, he seemed to partner. Well, the other thing about taggers, um, graffiti vandals, is that they usually travel in pairs. And this is because one needs to hold the legs while the other one dangles over the bridge and does his or her work. <laughs> they're, they're often also uh, one of the par other parts of the profile, and I've interviewed a few of them. They have a lot of um, extra energy, let's just say. They're usually mm -hmm. very small, uh, not small, but slender and wiry, and they know how to get into difficult places. And um, they have a, um, a tendency towards, uh, they like dangerous or risky activities, definitely. And this is one of the things that is, the things they do that's most dangerous is that dangling. You've seen things over the bridges, I'm sure, over the freeways. I wonder, how in the heck did they get that up there? And that's what they do. Anyway, Merck and Lyons tagged together. And when we caught them, they were both about 25 years old. And they had caused, uh, we estimated in the area, about... Uh, the one we caught them on, they'd, they'd done $5,000 worth of damage, and they'd been working for years, so you do the math. Um, anyway, uh, and uh, recently, another tag that appeared in Buffalo quite a bit was H-E-R-T. And it's hard sometimes to decipher these tags. Um, we now have a couple people on our um, the graffiti task force in Buffalo who are very good at it, and I can give you the name of one of the lieutenants because he's become very good at reading the graffiti. Um, and we couldn't figure out for a while what H-E-R-T, I mean, it sounds like hurt. And usually these tags, tag names do have double entendres. 
But what it turned out to be, there's a street in Buffalo called Hurdle, H-E-R-T-E-L, and this particular person lived on Hurdle or near Hurdle in the Hurdle Avenue area and grew up there. So that was his moniker, um, H-E-R-T. And he, finally, he's been active for about 10 years, I'd say. Um, We just got word yesterday that he was arrested in Pittsburgh. And um, I think because of information that we've had put out somewhere, the Pittsburgh police knew, uh, I guess probably because they knew he was from Buffalo, but they contacted the lieutenant at Buff State, who's the expert in, in uh, local expert in graffiti, and uh, we're, we will be supplying them with information for their case. Um, which is, it's, you know, it's an information sharing uh, problem. It's solved by information sharing, um, as in most crime analysis and police work. Information is um, so key to getting and, a problem solved. And so this Buffalo tagger moved to Pittsburgh or was in Pittsburgh doing the same thing, and that also speaks to the issue of cross-jurisdictional information sharing and the difficulty, too, if I know some places do have keep databases, and I know Buffalo was working on taking photos of graffiti, and I know funding issues are determine whether initiatives like that can continue if the priority is to fund someone, which might not be anyone in law enforcement, it might be someone in the community or in a task force, as you were speaking about, to collect pictures of graffiti and and document them and, and analyze them to see what kind of problem. If we have gang graffiti, that could tell us more about an area. For example, I went on a ride along with a gang suppression unit, and they showed me an area with a lot of bloods, the gang blood, the bloods gang graffiti. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it wasn't until a year or two later that really became noticeable through violence that we had a bloods problem, but really we had the indicators two or three Early years on. before that that the bloods were in this neighborhood. And so so sharing that information and analyzing it is so important. But as you mentioned a task force, maybe you can let us know what I, – I believe the task force was successful. Maybe you can tell us what some of the successes were and what, how the task force worked. Sure, sure. You know, before I do that, though, I just want to say one thing about the difference between um, gang graffiti and this tagger graffiti. Um, gang graffiti usually is kind of single lines, um, you know, people just writing up symbols, and um, they are fairly easy to um, decipher if you're in law enforcement. Most law enforcement uh, departments and police departments have uh, somebody on uh on staff who knows something about gang graffiti. The tagger graffiti, one of the biggest differences is they really are, they call it art, of course, but they do things like big bubble letters. It's a whole different look um, than gang graffiti. Uh, and so that's just one quick way. They usually use a lot of color in theirs, and often it almost looks cartoonish. Um, so it's it's a one quick way to distinguish between the two types of graffiti uh, that your listeners might be interested in knowing. Uh, the task force well, let me just give you an idea of the makeup of the task force. Um, it was uh, my office, of course, the Regional Community Policing Center, and then um, police officers from uh, the universities, which was key because we found out finally, and we, we figured this out pretty quickly, actually, that a lot of the taggers were actually college students. Um, the local police department, of course, the Buffalo Police Department. Another key um, partner in policing was, of course, the um, police from the railroads. Um, CSX was our local railroad, and um, that person had all sorts of data. They kept excellent data, because this was one of the problems they had on, going on for years. And they'd often arrest people 
and maybe couldn't prove anything, but they usually had their names and they had their something about their tags. So they were an invaluable source. If you, if any of your listeners are interested in putting together groups, certainly include um, the uh, railroad police. Um, we also included the DA's office, very very helpful, um, and we included some people who started a program called Restorative Justice because we didn't want to uh, prosecute all taggers alike. Uh, the kids who were just starting out, we really wanted to get to them and talk to them before. We didn't want to get them on a arrest record for this. So we used restorative justice, usually what's called a victim offender conference, to, uh, a, to deal with them, let's just say. But the DA's office was very important. They would call me or somebody else on the team and ask you know, if they had an arrest, what kind of tagger this was, what kind of history it was. And the task force was very good about keeping track. You know, We might not be able to arrest these people, but we knew what they'd done and we, we kept track of their tags. So we would give them the information and let them know if there's somebody we wanted to prosecute um, in court as opposed to just you know setting up a victim offender conference or something like that. Another key partner was the business community because they were heavily affected, especially in the downtown area, and they kept the best records of all because they were motivated. They, this was, uh, you know, again, if it makes an area look unsafe, that's, that's one of the things a downtown area doesn't want to have happen. They kept beautiful records, and they still do. Um, and then so, community members also who were affected by the problem. They were good about keeping records in their area. Everybody kind of kept records for their own area, and then mm -hmm. we pulled our, our information. So you wanted to identify the um, graffiti and the prolific offenders and the re repeat offenders and the nature of the graffiti. But um, what... Can, did people do to prevent graffiti? You know, it's there's two different approaches here. The first of all is to get the, you know, obviously if you hopefully if you get people off the street, they won't do the graffiti, but there will be new people. So working on prevention efforts was was there, was there a prevention component to your project? Oh yes, prevention's always wonderful, key. <laughs> but it's hard with graffiti. It is difficult with graffiti prevention. Um, uh, well, <laughs> mural, like art murals, um, I mean, different yeah. areas, it doesn't mean that these work everywhere, and that's what listeners should realize. Something, everyone's problem might sound the same, but it depends on where you are, how you address it, what works. Some yeah. solutions work in some neighborhoods and well, cities. I'll tell you, don't. once you take it off, in general, in an area, we did a graffiti removal um, on a one-mile stretch of um, area in Buffalo called Bailey Avenue. And um, we did this with youth and adults together, and only one site got retagged out of the 16 or 16 something sites that we uh, painted over. So that site was identified as a vulnerable site. So we could do something to prevent that happening again there. You know, keep a better eye on it, and um, use a kind of coating paint on that site that could we can remove the graffiti easily. Uh, there's a, something called a sacrificial. Um, coating that you can put on a, uh, a building that makes it easy to uh, remove the graffiti. Um, so, you know, once you identify the problem, get rid of it once, there is something you can do to prevent it from happening again. And in general, it won't happen again. They will find another location. But some sites are vulnerable, and um, those you have to develop a different kind of approach to preventing it from happening again. And some um, places, they limit use, they might um, leave, you know, the markers and the pens the particular graffiti making equipment might be made less accessible for shoplifting for youth 
things like yeah. that also. Yeah, businesses can do that, yeah. They can get it under behind the counter or whatnot, but not a lot of them have. Um, it's just a little harder. You know, that's something a lot of people want to buy markers and, and indelible right. ink, that sort of thing, and paint. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little harder. I'll tell you, the guys that we, um, and I think it was actually the, uh, no, it wasn't the railroad police. It was a business uh, security guard that caught the MERK and Lions uh, taggers. They caught them with full gas, gas masks on. Um, and huge spray guns. I mean, these guys have expensive equipment that they were working with. They could get a lot done in a short time. Um, you know, it would be hard to uh, put those behind the counter anywhere, but it's certainly worthwhile to talk. Again, if you've got a real vulnerable area, to let your business owners know. Give them their pictures so they know when they come in that either they're going to be stealing something or buying something that's going to be used for an illegal purpose and make that connection. It would be a great way to prevent. Another great way to prevent is, as I mentioned, um, we have victim offender conferences with some of the lower level uh, taggers, the ones who weren't doing a lot of work but were easier to catch, let's just say. And um, as part of the discussion, we would uh, you know, let them know what the effect they were having on their community was. We'd include a community member and they'd tell them about the harm they had done to their community and um, just talking to the kids. Uh, and then one other thing we did that I thought was um, a uh, great idea. We went to the graphic arts department of one of the colleges that we identified as being a hotbed of tagger um, activity, our place where the taggers seem to have gone to school. And the graphic arts department um, did a series of public service announcements created by the kids peer to peer. Uh, and so we First of all, got a chance to talk to that group of kids, and they're rarely were our target audience. I think a lot of their friends were actually the taggers, if not some of the ones in the room. Again, about the harm to the community and what we were trying to do, um, you know, to make the community feel uh, safer and um, and to help the community. And we, these aren't always kids who've got bad attitudes. Some of them are. Some of them are just simply antisocial, and there's no way you're going to get to them except perhaps through arrest and some jail time. But a lot of them just, you know, were doing sort of self-expression things, and they, they, once they understood what the harm was, um, I think they, uh, you know, relented to some degree. But then again, they created these wonderful public service announcements. I mean, these are creative kids in a lot of cases um, to let people know what the harm of the um, of graffiti was in their own peer group. Well, I have we only we have about um, a little less than five minutes left, and I had a question, Lieutenant Robert Hubbs from. Knoxville Police Department um, emailed me a few questions. One thing he wanted to know about was how, how graffiti ordinance could be implemented and, and do they work. Um, maybe you could ex explain a bit about that. Um, the ordinances are re require property owners to clean their property, the graffiti, within a reasonable time. How do those work and how do you get them to work? I know several cities that have adopted them, and I believe I know that Buffalo... Um, did have one. I, probably they still have a graffiti ordinance on the books, uh, and it does say that the owner has to remove it within. Um, I, it's either 10 or 30 days. But our really our purpose in in supporting that ordinance wasn't to penalize the victim twice, you know, the the business owner or the residential owner, but to get compliance from them to have the community take it off. Because sometimes when we were doing graffiti removals, they didn't care and they wouldn't. Uh, uh, let us take it off. But if you've got an ordinance in hand and say, look, if you don't take it off, you're going to get fined, uh, then you get some better compliance. And also, you know, it's just sometimes the, the owner has to swallow the, the bill and 
uh, and uh, just remove it. So that helps um, get you some compliance for that uh, also in places that um, you know the community can't get to it or whatever. A lot of times they tag up real high. Right. So and that was our main use of the ordinance. And they are easy to find on the web, I think, through city ordinance uh, sites. Well, but some places require property owners to give signed releases so other citizen groups can paint over graffiti. Is that exactly? That's what we need. You do have to get to remove graffiti from another person's property. You usually do have to have a signed release. And uh, again, to get compliance from those owners, pull out that graffiti ordinance, and usually you get the signature. And did we do that in Buffalo, or, or not? We did. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, we absolutely used it. I, people just didn't care in a lot of neighborhoods, and um, they didn't want to take the time to even come to the counter to sign a release. Well, after you get the graffiti ordinance and, and a letter from the um, inspections department, then they would sign and, and let it and uh, have it taken off. And so, organizing citizen groups to work on this problem was is that difficult or? Um, you know, we had a training. We actually pr produced a training for citizens groups. There were some very active neighborhoods that would do the removals, you know, usually a couple times a year, and we would train them on how to do it because there are specific things you shouldn't do. You shouldn't paint over brick, for instance, and um, there are, you know, you have to get it water pressure washed, and that's something usually the city would have to do, and that was more complicated. Um, and there are other things people needed to know about um, how to clean up a, a site. And again, this is all on the graffitihurts.org website, I believe. They, they give that kind of information. They have an entire book about the different kinds of ways to remove graffiti. But uh, you know, there's some citizen groups that are really great about it. You just have to locate them, and they'll take care of their neighborhood. And if the other citizen groups don't care, then there's not a lot you can do. But we usually found they were interested once they got the information on how to do it and you know, had a party <laughs> to get people out to do it. We also did murals uh, through the Weed and Seed program in Buffalo. They did several murals, and that does help prevent a, a vulnerable space from getting re-tagged. And, um, and Lieutenant Hubbs also said that he sees an increased use of markers and large pens to ascribe a hieroglyphic-looking design on traffic control boxes, light poles, newspaper boxes. And he wondered if this was a trend elsewhere. And you already answered that question prior to the show, but I think what we need to urge is that people communicate across jurisdictions and go to those websites, graffitihurts.org, or the Pop Center also um, online and look for what works. Yes. Yeah. The yeah. Oh, the tagging on the telephone boxes and the electric boxes and the newsstand—that's been going on for quite a while. And usually, again, it is the graffiti vandals, not gang members. And it usually is their own moniker that they're tagging on there, so that people know that they've been there. Um, and again, they can be deciphered. Uh, um, the tagger um, hieroglyphics are similar. So uh, I can give the name. I'm not sure I have the address of Sam Lunetta um, at Buffalo State College if uh, someone's got interest in reading graffiti because he's one of the best that I know in um, actually being able to uh, decipher those hieroglyphics. And they do look like hieroglyphics. Okay, the show's but it is the now. kind of thank, language. Thank you, Pam. We have to go okay. now. Okay, take right. care. Bye-bye.